0: Good morning, family. Good, morning. Good to Let's start over, shall we? Good morning, family. Good, morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. If you're visiting with us, stick around. Let us get to know you a little bit better. If you're brave, fill out one of those cards that's on the back of the pew in front of you so that we can call you about your life insurance policy and your car insurance to make sure that they're not expired uh, as we go through all of this together. It's good to see everyone. I wanted to just get some quick announcements out of the way before we get into the lesson. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 if you're wanting to turn over there. But I want to remind everyone the parents and youth and parent meeting with the elders is today in the fellowship hall immediately following our morning services. Tonight is our final out of the box yeah, before we start life groups next or not next Sunday on, in February when we kick that off. So at 6 o'clock. Be here. I'm going to tell you right now, I have learned several things from the kids as they've been up front with me during lesson time, namely that a hammer cures everything. (laughs) Thank goodness for Elias. And Luke, who says that hammers are for banging, Uh, which is interesting because I didn't know that before. We want to encourage you, if you families, young members, all of those folks, be here tonight at six o'clock Thursday after our Wednesday Bible class. Thursday, as everyone can sing at six p.m. and special time next Sunday. Just wanting to remind everyone, next Sunday morning's Bible class and sermon are going to be presented to us by the man named of Tyrone Mynir. Now he heads up a mission program in South Sudan and Ethiopia. And he's going to be presenting his work to us next Sunday morning. I encourage everyone to be here for that. Uh, Tyrone is a, well, you'll find out about Tyrone next week. He's a character. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy hearing what he has to say. And that's going to be sixth grade to adults. We're going to combine in here for the Bible class time period. And then after our morning worship, since it is fifth Sunday, which by the way, I'm going to just pause for a second. I'm used to the Church of Christ doing potlucks on the first Sunday of every month. Okay? That's normal. That's biblical. That's scriptural. Okay? You move down here and they're like, no, we only do it every time there's a fifth Sunday. And I'm like, that means that I don't get to eat that much very often. But it has been explained to me by one of our elders, who will go unnamed, Chris Guerrero, who has said that the reason we only do it on fifth Sundays is because the amount of food is so substantial that you really don't need to eat for another three months. After you've been here for that. So I want to encourage everyone, bring a dish to share for the potluck next Sunday. And if you were planning on attending the VBS planning meeting next Sunday, that time has changed. It will not be at 5 p.m. It will be immediately following the devotional that immediately follows the potluck meal. Does that make sense? So if you're planning on being here for the VBS meeting, stick around for the Devo. We're going to roll right into the VBS planning meeting from the Devo on that. Let's talk a little bit about what we talked about last week before we get into the text this morning. If you remember, we talked about the idea of suffering and that suffering as Christians puts us in really good company. We can look at the scriptures and look at biblical characters who have suffered because of what was right. We can actually even just look at the extra-biblical record of the martyrs and those that we are aware of that have suffered for what is right. And we find ourselves, if we are indeed suffering, in really good company, because there's a benefit that comes with suffering for what is right. Now remember, you're not special if you're suffering because what you did was wrong, okay? You know why I say you're not special? Because everybody gets that, and when everybody's special, no one is, okay? If you're suffering for what is wrong, guess what? You have just been introduced to a basic law of the universe. That's what happens when you do what's wrong. You will suffer for it. But if you're suffering for what is right, that's special. That that presents benefits to us that we would not have otherwise through all of that. Today we're going to move forward from that idea because Peter's using this as a springboard in our text to an idea and a Part of the Bible, I think, that is probably pretty difficult for us in a lot of different ways. Uh, But understand that as we read this, it is based upon the foundation of Peter's claim of suffering and that Jesus is the example that we're supposed to be looking at and that this is meant to encourage us as we are being persecuted for doing what is right. Okay, there's very, it's a very specific context of what Peter is addressing here. And the purpose behind all of this is to get us excited, to get Christians excited about not just living now, but also for the glory that awaits us on the other side of time, getting as we live and work toward eternity. So let's join together. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 18, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Read along with me. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been su- subjected to him. So let's, let's deal with the first big item in, the, in this text that I think maybe we're having a hard time, we might have a hard time wrapping our minds around but it's actually very simple. The first thing that Peter deals with here as he's in the greater context of persecution and Christ as the example, is that we are told that Jesus died once. And he did that for all. And he, he expounds on the idea by just saying, Jesus is the just and we are the unjust. The all is the unjust, the just for the unjust. And he did this as an example He's setting the example for actually suffering for what is right. When you go back at just a little bit in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21, he says, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. If this isn't underlined in your Bibles, it needs to be leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled... He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you're healed. All right, so first he says, this was the example of how to behave through all of this. And then he says, it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. That's the verse right before our text. So as we're looking at Peter's argument, Jesus is the example. This is how we're supposed to behave. It's a good thing when you suffer for what is right because that's the example that was set by the master. And the whole purpose of this was to open up the door so that we could have access to the father in relationship. Listen, Jesus didn't just come to this planet, suffer for what is right just because it was the cool thing to do. He did this for a very specific reason because you and I needed access to the Father in a way that only he could provide. It was necessary that this happened the way that it happened. Otherwise, if Jesus did not come in the flesh, let me make sure I'm not jumping ahead here. Yeah, if Jesus did not come in the flesh, is there any resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection from the dead, why do we believe in him? Why would we follow in his steps? Why would we look at him as the example for life? He's a fraud. But the truth of the matter is that he came to give the example in the flesh, to die in the flesh, and be raised new, raised by the Spirit, made alive. And we know that this is the case because, all right, when you watch Jesus walk on the earth, this is kind of fun. I don't know if you've ever studied this. But when you watch Jesus walk on the earth prior to his crucifixion, yeah, he does some amazing things, you know, the whole walking on water, the miracles and everything else, but you don't ever see Jesus doing what he was doing after his resurrection that he did before his crucifixion. He's different. He ninjas into rooms that are locked, right? The disciples have locked themselves away because they're afraid and nobody's getting in, but then all of a sudden Jesus appears in their midst That didn't happen before. They're like, whoa, master, you're alive. Whoa, what's the deal? Can't really figure this one out. And Thomas is like, hey, listen, here's the deal, okay? You guys are telling a great story, but unless I put my hand in his wounds, so Jesus shows up. He's like, hey, Thomas, come here. Check this out. Boo, big gaping hole in his side. How's he he actually existing with that? You ever stop to think about that? He's different. He's new because he was raised by the Spirit. Does he still have a physical form? Yes. I'm not saying he doesn't. But he's different now because of his resurrection. And he is doing things differently than he did prior to his resurrection. Think that Peter's taking us to a certain point here, guys? Things change after you die, and you've been brought back to life. It's not the same, and it's not meant to be the same. Okay? So he talks about these things. And, so, and that was the point of our reading, Robin, thank you for that this morning, of being raised with an imperishable body. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Look at what Paul, I love Paul. Those of us today would kind of, are shocked when he calls somebody a fool, but... Paul doesn't care. You fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be but a bare grain. Perhaps a weed or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So Christ suffered death in his perishable body. He is made alive imperishable. And this occurs at the time of his death and the days that follow, okay? Now, the reason this should be encouraging to us is because there's something better waiting for us after death, okay? This should be highly encouraging to us that even as, as, as we're being persecuted for doing what is right, for the joy before us or a little bit further down the road, even if it leads to physical death, that is not the end for us. Because what is perishable will then put on what is imperishable. So that's, that's point number one, which leads us to point number two, this proclamation that Jesus makes. Okay, Now, if we look back at verses 19 and 20, he says he was made alive in the Spirit, verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The most common interpretation of verses 19 and 20 says that Christ, Jesus, between his death and resurrection, that time period that's there, went and preached the gospel to the disobedient. This is the most common interpretation, all right? I'll say it again. That during the time between his death and his resurrection, Jesus went and preached the gospel to the disobedient. During the time of Noah. Okay? Now, here's what happens. If we believe that this is actually what happened, all right? Follow it through to its logical conclusion with me we believe that that is what happened, then that will lead us to a very specific doctrine that's called probation. Meaning that even though you are dead, those who are impenitent still have a second chance of salvation. Jeremy utterly rejects that interpretation. Utterly. It does not match the biblical narrative at all. For one thing, let's pay attention here, guys. Peter does not say that Jesus went and preached the gospel in in this section of the text. He does not say that. What he does say is that Jesus went and made a proclamation to the disobedient. That's what Peter says. So the question that we have to answer is, what is this proclamation? What is Jesus doing as he's making this statement? Why was it only given to the disobedient who lived during the time of Noah? Which, by the way, <clears throat> this is a basic Bible, Bible class question. Who was disobedient during the time of Noah? Everybody but Noah and his family. Okay, everybody. And what happened to those who were disobedient during the time of Noah? They all died, okay? So understand that Peter has a very specific point that he's taking us to, all right? And Peter is talking about Jesus heralding, the heralding of the successful mission of Jesus through all of this, okay? That at his ascension, when you look, uh, you go back to the beginning of the book of Acts and Jesus makes his ascension and the disciples are standing there doing what we would do, and the angel shows up and says, why are you staring up into the sky with your mouth open? Shut your mouth and listen. And that's not really what he says, but that's how I imagine. If Jeremy was the angel, that's what he'd say. And they make proclamation about the success of Jesus. And that in the way they see him going, he will return. Okay? That he is, this proclamation is made of victory. And scripture paints a picture of Jesus as a conqueror. Okay. When you look at verse 22, who is at the Jesus who is at the right hand of God having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. He's the conqueror. Or you look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Right? Therefore it says when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Or in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Jesus is the all-conquering king. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. And there's a really frightening thing about that statement, guys. You're either going to bow and confess Jesus as king of your own choice at one point in your life, or there will come a time when Jesus will put his boot to your neck and make you confess that. That's what a conqueror does. Everyone will come to the realization that Jesus is conquering king. Everyone. And it's this victory that sends ripples through time. Okay, you ever throw a a pebble in a pond or a stone or whatever? Uh, Have you ever noticed that when you do that the ripples don't just go in one direction. They they go out away from that point of impact, right? So this proclamation that Jesus is making, the victory, as he's declaring victory over everything, this proclamation is so powerful and so far-reaching in character that it extends back through history to those who existed during the time of the flood, Genesis 5 and 6 outline the history and degradation of mankind, all of the consequences that come from it. But here's an interesting thing. Did you know that there are over 200 flood stories throughout the cultures of humanity historically? It's weird, right? Like every culture has a flood story. Why do do you think that is? You ever stop to think about that? Well, because there's one family... They land after the water subside. They spread out and people do what people do make babies. Mankind grows. And then all of these cultures remember this story. That by the time the flood had come, guess what else has now been essentially wiped from memory? The creation and the fallen creation. See, to mankind, when we look at it from a purely historical perspective, for mankind to look back as far as they can remember as a culture, the one thing that everybody has in their stories is the flood. And guess who Peter is not writing to here? He's not writing to Jews. But yet everybody knows the flood story. And that's Peter's point through all of this, is it takes us back as far as we can remember historically. This proclamation is so powerful that it changes the way the world operates and sees things. And it goes back all the way to when you can remember as a culture, and it will continue moving forward historically through all of this. And then God did that, and it sent shockwaves through history. And his act of suffering for what is right changes the course of history. And to Peter's point, it proves the power of the gospel. And so we find ourselves looking at the text and looking at our lives, all of these years later, by the way, and we look at Noah and his family, and that we, we see the similarities that Peter is bringing to us from the Noah' story, for those of us that are familiar with it, and Noah's family through all of this, that God, because of man's degradation and sin, had said, judgment comes. Judgment is coming and will come because of your sin. Okay? But Noah escapes judgment. Eight people, including Noah, have enough faith to get on the boat. They acted in faith when they got on the ark. And by being on the ark, they were brought safely through God's judgment. See, the water was not the means of salvation for Noah and his family. The water was means of God's judgment. The ark was the means of salvation. And so when we read 1 Peter chapter 3, this section of text, we cannot equate the waters of baptism to the means of salvation. It's not what Peter is doing here. That just as in the days of Noah, men by faith and women by faith got on the ark to escape judgment, water then becomes essentially the means of our judgment and God's judgment on our sin. And we die. And we are raised new. But who, what is the ark of salvation for us? Jesus, Jesus is the ark of salvation for us. He is the one who carries us through judgment to the inheritance of promise. He saves. So Peter tells them, just like Noah and those folks in the ark were saved from God's judgment, Baptism saves us, not the water, because here's the deal. We could could enter the water without faith, and guess what, what happens? There's no judgment on sin. There's no death. There's no anything else. We just come out of the water wet, but it has to be by faith that we enter into the ark of Jesus, and he carries us through the waters of baptism. That saves That is what saves, and it's a beautiful thing, right? Uh, Paul will say it this way in Romans chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized... Where were we baptized into, according to Paul's statement here? Not into the water, into Christ, okay? We're baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in new life. See the the parallels of the example now? Okay, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. For if we have become united in him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Baptism puts us into the ark of salvation, which, by the way, is a cleansing of sin. And even as wonderful as that is, okay? And it's wonderful, don't misunderstand me. Look at how Peter describes it. He says, it's not just a bath where you're cleaning the the physical filth off of you, but it goes so deep that it cleanses your conscience. So that means, check it out, that means that everything that I ever did to be guilty of has been removed and therefore I am no longer guilty, which means I should no longer feel guilty. Guys, guilt is for the guilty, all right? I know, and and I've said it before, I'm gonna say it probably till I die. Guilt is for the guilty. And guilt is what God has given us as a great and wonderful tool to bring us back into alignment with his standard. Guilt tells us we're wrong. But Peter says, Jesus removes the guilt. He takes care of it. You can move forward with a good Conscience, which, by the way, is one of the greatest lies that Satan will tell you when you are being persecuted for what is right, is that you're not doing what's right. He'll make you feel guilty. And Peter says, "No, no, 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 no. That's not how it works here. Guilt is for the guilty. Yes, but when you entered into the ark of salvation, that conscience was cleansed. On this, you can move forward with a clean conscience, knowing you're doing what's right, no matter what is happening to you in the physical realm. That's how this whole thing is meant." to work, that through our faith in Jesus and all that it accomplishes, that our acting in faith, we're saved, and there's no question about whether or not Christ has the power to save us. Because everything's been subjected to him. This is powerful stuff. You know, often we read that scripture, you know, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God And we look at it and go, okay, that's kind of strange. Where's the power in it? It's powerful because it changed the world. Then, it changes the world now. And it will continue to change the world as long as the earth exists. It will not go away. The Christ's example and the Gospels' reverberations are felt through antiquity and reaching into the future, and it touches us right here, right now. And it gives us the confidence to know, to give us the courage to live, following the example of Jesus, because we know what's on the other side. We know that while we face difficulties in this life now, what's on the other side is (laughs) infinitely greater than any of the good and the benefits and the grace and love and joy that we have experienced on this earth. what's coming is greater. But here's the deal, guys. Do we really believe that humanity is any different today than it was during the time of Noah? If we want to participate in the power of the gospel, if we want to have our sins washed away, if we want to live this life with a clean conscience, then you better get on the boat. Because it's only through Jesus that we are saved. And our faith guides us into the water to die. I don't, I've said this before, I don't know how it works. You're in the water, you got all these sins, you come out of the water, you got no sin. God didn't give me like an in-depth view on how that works, but you know what I do believe? That he's faithful and he keeps a promise. I don't need to see the ins and outs of it, I just need to believe that it actually will happen. And that if I want to be a participant in the glory of the future and the glory that awaits, I've got to get in the boat and that boat's going to lead me through the water. And that's the same for all of us. This is the first step of greatness, the first step of newness for us to make the confession of Jesus is Christ and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. The Bible couldn't be any plainer on it. If you, if you look at the history of God, how God works water and everything else that's in there, you will be amazed that God doesn't do coincidence and he doesn't do random on this. He's very purposeful in how he approaches it. And it hasn't changed. Brian's gonna lead us in a song. Let this be an opportunity for us. If you haven't become a Christian by being baptized and having your sins washed and your conscience cleansed, this is the time. If if you've been living a life that is contrary to the call of Jesus, okay, finding yourself suffering through things, feeling guilty, guess what? That's God telling you to come on back. Renew the relationship. Be restored with him, which, by the way, also happens through Jesus. Jesus if you need counsel from the elders, prayers of the body, whatever it is that we can do for you this morning, we encourage you to make it known by coming forward while we stand and sing.